It's January 10th, 2024. And we're a week into this year's winter retreat. And having completed a week of full group practice on the beginning of the retreat, I gave a talk about the beginnings of retreat. And usually that day two or day three is difficult. And I, I was considering this retreat, this being a three-month retreat, and it is a little bit different actually entering a longer retreat and maybe it takes about that first week to really start to get into the swing of things, get into the rhythm of retreat, get into retreat mode. So for myself, I do feel like I'm in retreat mode now and I think I think probably all of us more or less are in retreat mode. And uh, there is that adjustment period. So uh, going from just our normal outside of retreat mode and then not having the work periods and then for the monastic community, then doing the group practice throughout the day, morning session of meditation, afternoon session of meditation, morning and evening pujas and then getting into this retreat routine or retreat mode. So I found, although yeah, for me, day, day two and day three was difficult as any length of retreat, those, those days would be difficult and maybe there'd be hindrances or obstacles on those days, but I found actually it took a little bit longer than that, that this whole week was kind of getting into retreat mode, entering the gate of retreat, what I think of as entering the mandala any practice that we undertake, we have to get through a barrier in the beginning and then we're in that practice. So now we're really in winter retreat and we'll have two more weeks of full schedule until we open it up a little bit more and the members of the master community will start with solitary retreats. And for those of us not on solitary retreat, then we'll, have, we'll still have a bit more of an open period after after the full group practice. So we'll have time for solitude, time to explore, time to even physically explore the land. When we start to have open afternoons, we'll have time to explore the land of Abayagiri. And if it's not raining, we might have the chance to explore outside and live outside or sit at the uh, foot of a tree and experience that, that type of practice. And so we do have this, this really kind of good period of time, three months uh, to, to explore in various ways, various types of practice and really kind of a, acquire a taste for practice. And I've enjoyed reading some teachings from Lumpur Cha the book Still Forest Pool, and that was the the first Longport Cha book that I read. So just it's nice to revisit some of those teachings and just reconnect with them. And on the first day, just reading the introduction to that book, and uh, that was compiled by Jack Cornfield and Paul Breiter. And just reading the introduction, and it's about 
you know, going to Thailand in the 1980s and boarding a train and going up to the Isan and just watching the paddy fields go by and the villagers, the villages getting more and more sparse and entering into the more rural areas. And as I was reading that, my hair was just standing on end the whole time because I just remember originally reading that and visualizing it. And, and it's just, for me, it's, I'm so grateful now over the years to have had the opportunity to actual experience, actually experience that, actually go to the Thailand, go to the Isan and actually experience living there for long periods of time. And I'm incredibly grateful to have been able to experience that firsthand. So taking those teachings and taking those images of Thailand and when we can actually cultivate the practice here. And those of us who stay here for a longer period of time, then uh, we might feel inclined to visit Thailand and, and live in those monasteries there. So it's one of the blessings of living here at Abayagiri is we, we get a very, have a very strong connection with Thailand and a very strong connection with the monasteries there. So, so we get to go there and live there and experience that and right view, a lot of what uh, Luang Pa Cha is talking about is, is right view, right view and patient endurance and coming back to these core principles of practice and really these, the theme of the retreat being back to the basics, Four Noble Truths, Noble Eightfold Path and really what uh, Luang Pa Cha is talking about these basic things, contemplation of impermanence, patient endurance, just uh, being able to overcome any obstacles. And then I'm also thinking of uh, this uh, Lungporo Pat book, Ovada, that I've started to read and, and he's talking about how people who have never really experienced obstacles, they never really grow in wisdom and so when we do undertake meditation practice, we undertake this kind of, uh, this path, this lifestyle, trying to meditate and keep precepts and develop wisdom, then we are gonna run up against obstacles and it's gonna be unpleasant at times uh, for shorter or longer periods of time. And sometimes really strong obstacles might come up and we just, we, we can gain insight through overcoming those obstacles or through going through those obstacles. To, so to see dukkha, seeing dukkha, the first noble truth, dukkha is to be understood. And so, uh, so seeing dukkha, when, when those obstacles arise, actually being able to see it is, is very, very important. And, uh, and I was looking forward in the book, Still Forest Pool, a little bit because uh, I'm not going to be doing readings this coming week, but uh, might pick it up again at some point. And uh, one of the talks that's later on in the book that I was reviewing was uh, Ajahn Chah talking about the importance of having teachers and having these things pointed out to us because uh, our habits and our tendencies are very, very strong. And sometimes we can... We can have things that happen to us like 
we might experience a state of meditation and overestimate ourselves. I think, and from, from myself, from my own experience, I think this is very, very common. And or misinterpret the experience or experience things like visions in our meditation. Our mind starts to get peaceful and we experience visions, what we call nimitta. In Thailand, they call it nimittas. And then either make too much of them or misinterpret them. So it's good to remember, like, uh, I listened to a talk one time of uh, a tape, an old tape of Lumpur Ban. And uh, he said, he's talking about nimittas. And he said, uh, it's, it's not good to get too involved with nimittas. If, if you are very skilled, maybe you can learn how to interpret them correctly or use them to your benefit. But for the most part, nimittas are just the shadow of the true mind. These visions that happen in the mind are the shadow of the true mind. And he says, it's like the shadow of food. If you, if you eat the shadow of food, do you get full? So he said that's how uh, he teaches that that's how we relate to these visions that can happen in the mind. So to be careful not to make too much of them. And, or also kind of when we really feel strongly about something, to learn how to question that rather than just believing it because it's a strong feeling, therefore it must be true. So learning how to question the mind. So Ajahn Chah, he's, uh, he's talking in this, this one uh, talk I was reviewing earlier today, which is uh, said the importance of teachers because when we start to experience some happiness in the mind, some peace in the mind, then it's good to actually be able to get advice from teachers. And he said, but what happens invariably is the advice we get is the very thing we don't want to hear. So because a good teacher is the one who's going to point out the faults that we don't see in ourselves, the hidden faults, and it's very difficult to do. It takes a really true teacher to be able to do that. And he said invariably the teacher is going to end up pointing out the things that we don't think we need to let go of. He's going to say, oh, that's actually what you don't see. That's what you need to let go of. And that can be very, very helpful if we're open to it and really uh, speed up progress along the path. So uh, Ajahn Chah talking about the importance of teachers, or I think I, what I relate this to is just the importance of listening to teachings frequently, the importance of listening to talks, listening to readings, and just getting to hear that and, and take it in and, and apply it to our own experience. And then when we practice meditation more, we practice meditation a lot, sitting and walking meditation in the morning period and the afternoon period, then when we get to do that more, then we're going to get to see all sorts of things. When does the mind wander off? How does the mind wander off? Or what kind of things are we focusing on? What types of memories are coming up? A lot of times it's just, it's just things we've thought about or focused on before, and it might even be from a very long time ago, things we had forgotten about, and it comes up again in the meditation, just things that we might even find really annoying, old movies, old songs that we didn't even like, and they just come back during the meditation. And then we might think this is a hindrance, but if we identify with it, we can suffer over it, or we can just see it as just one of these phenomena that's arising and passing away. And we might want the mind to be in some sort of ideal state. We have this thought that we might want to 
live uh, just live peacefully in the forest. That was also one of the readings that um, is uh, Jack Cornfield going to uh, he had ordained and then went to Wat Bapong and he was in in Thailand and uh, went to Lumpur Cha, paid respects in Ajahn Cha, shocking him by saying, "Are you ready to suffer?" Are you prepared to suffer? He said, no, I didn't come here to suffer. I came here to live peacefully in the forest. He said, well, there's two types of suffering. The suffering that leads to the ending of suffering and the suffering that leads to more suffering. If you're not willing to undergo the first type of suffering, you're surely going to undergo more of the second. So it's, uh, it's work. It's work to work at these basics, to work at this looking into the Four Noble Truths. And uh, I, I just find it incredibly, an incredible blessing that we have teachings of these Ajahns, Ajahn Chah. I just started reading the Ajahn, the, uh, Ajahn Tun biography, Ajahn Tun Kipapanyo. And he's, he's got some interesting things, very, very similar in, in, in flavor, those types of teachings, the importance of having a teacher and he's saying yeah people who get these states of samadhi and you know it's uh, it's really easy to misinterpret them if you don't have a teacher to talk to about it and uh, it's really the same thing Ajahn Chah's Ajahn Chah is saying I remember uh, my it was my second day here as a lay guest when I first came here and we had the opportunity to go go up to KPY to drive up there and pay respects to Lumpur Tun. He was visiting from Thailand. And I remember uh, at that time, for Vasa Tanachalo was translating. And he was the guest monk here at the time. And uh, I remember uh, that was, for me, that was very memorable because I had just fresh come to the monastery. It was all, it was all brand new for me. And getting to go and see Akruba Ajahn was... Uh, it was very special. And I remember what he was talking about was Four Noble Truths and Satipatthana, the foundations of mindfulness. And he, uh, he was cautioning against the dangers of uh, getting, getting samadhi experiences, but not yet having right view because, the, because those experiences are easy to misinterpret. And, and that really stuck with me. I think that was a very... Uh, a very good teaching. So at the beginning of retreat, how do we relate to beginnings? Uh, retreat crew, getting getting your feet on the ground, helping to look after the Sangha. And we're incredibly grateful for this, that we have this opportunity to for us to set things down and practice. And so the retreat crew uh, gives us that opportunity. So it is a very, very special time. And uh, we get to... Uh, set things down and really, really go inward. So for us, it's, it's very, very helpful. And I find this winter retreat period, um, it's a very special, very important time of the year to, uh, to be able to set things down. And uh, for myself, just it's a very rare and great blessing to not have to answer emails or, or phone messages. And this can, this kind of thing can be 
uh, it's a, a lot of it is good stuff. It's Dhamma work and Dhamma correspondence, but it's, uh, it can be a burden for the mind. And so uh, to be able to set those things down is incredibly helpful and then focus more on just where is the mind at, where is the heart at, where is the practice at, and uh, being able to foster those, those basic roots of the Dhamma. So coming back to right view, there is mundane right view and there's super mundane right view. The mundane right view is, it's, it's kind of related to super mundane right view. Super mundane right view is, is described as the Four Noble Truths or the view that there is suffering, there is a cause to suffering, there is an end of suffering, there is the path leading to the ending of suffering. The mundane right view is related to that. It's more about cause and effect and kama. There is action. There is the results of action. There is mother. There is father. There are people who have attained liberation. There is, there is this world that we can perceive. There are worlds we can't perceive. This world, the other world. And uh, that's mundane right view. So that, that helps us. That helps us along to the super mundane right view and uh, and then also using right view to to really set the motivation what are we looking for and we're looking for peace and this peace and letting go uh, comes through wisdom and when we develop wisdom through mindfulness and uh, then uh, the mind won't be able to hold on actually. So letting go comes through wisdom. And the wisdom is that real insight into the Four Noble Truths. So the it's not that we let go by an act of will or that we have to make ourselves or force ourselves to let go. If we have to force anything, that's not letting go. That's not dropping. It's just a different, it's holding on from a different angle. But with wisdom, then the mind can't keep holding on. When the mind when the mind sees suffering, when the mind sees suffering and the cause of suffering, it, it can't keep holding on. It will be impossible. So with wisdom, the mind would, would drop, drop everything. But to, uh, to see with wisdom is going to take the, the precepts and the meditation. And also with wisdom, the precepts would become very, very natural and very effortless. It would just be the natural way of being when there's wisdom. So to use this period of practice to, uh, to develop the precepts, uh, develop the meditation, one thing that's going to be difficult is when we have something like the eight precepts and the mind has resistance to certain precepts. So the Buddha said in this case we give attention to perceptions of resistance. And so the, the mind resists certain precepts and then that, that's the that's where some of that suffering leading to the ending of suffering comes up. So to not just follow the mind, not just believe the mind when we think, oh, you know, if I could just, you know, break some of these precepts or not keep the precepts, then then it would be better somehow. So, so to really look at those perceptions of resistance when they come up and uh, so for us, us monastics, we have to think about this with the... Uh, Padimokha sila, so the Padimokha precepts. Part of us might think, well, the 
yeah, this is not, maybe this isn't so convenient. Why are there's all these precepts? Maybe you don't have to take it so seriously. But then if we look at it from another angle, the mind can get very, very inspired by keeping precepts and develop a real fire for the keeping of virtue and gives us a lot of energy. And we can develop a wholesome pride, not an egotistical pride, but a wholesome pride in our own virtue. But a praised recollecting our, our, our own virtue often, our own generosity often, because it's, it's good to be able to see the results, uh, contemplate what kind of results might come from that. And we may have plenty of experience already seeing the results of not having virtue, but uh, we may not have yet seen the results of keeping virtue for a long period of time. But we have those examples, say examples like Ajahn Chah or or Ajahn Tun, Kipapanyo, we have those examples of they, they can a, give a testament to the results of virtue, the results of meditation, the results of wisdom. And sometimes during this retreat, during this three months, we may experience the, the mind just going quiet or not much in particular happening. And uh, it... Uh, to uh, cherish those times and really look into the times when suffering isn't arising and then use that for the contemplation. You know, how is that? Or just taking that time to enjoy the still mind, but then not forgetting to contemplate that that too will pass, that too will change. And then also we, in this community, because it's a we have a medium-sized community. We're not as big as Amravati, so we don't have 70 people living here, but we have enough people living here that it is a big-ish community. So just looking out for each other, helping each other out, that's a, that's a really important part of practice as well. And uh, with generosity and, and that sense of helping each other out, uh, a good attitude to cultivate is this idea that, yeah, I'll, I'll do things if I see something that needs to be done, if I see something that needs to be cleaned, I'm, I'm happy to do it myself and offer that. And if uh, even if somebody else isn't doing it, or if somebody, say, doesn't, doesn't show up on a certain day to uh, help with any uh, certain task, cultivate, cultivating that attitude, yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do this. I'm happy to help that other person out. You know, maybe they have a lot on or they need a rest. So happy to, help, happy to help that other person out. And then if everybody in the community has that same attitude, then things just become very, very beautiful and sparkling and, and it's quite wonderful, quite enjoyable to live in a community like that. I remember being in Anagarika when we had our original kitchen, the 1950s yellow linoleum, the little, uh, the kitchen that the maximum occupancy was three people until you were butting up against each other. And uh, and I just remember it's a much smaller community back then and I wasn't very good at asking for help so I had it where I would uh, just do the dishes by myself, do the meal cleanup by myself. And I would, sometimes I would cook by myself as well. But I would do the meal cleanup a lot of the times I would just do it by myself and uh, 
I, I did develop some resentment around that, around nobody coming to help. But then at a certain point, maybe halfway through my Anagarika year, I, I sort of surrendered to it. And, and then I just made this determination, I'm just going to do dishes until there's just no more dishes. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep doing dishes until it's done. However many dishes there is, it doesn't matter. And then I got to test this on uh, Katina, where uh, I just did dishes. I remember this. There's this one memorable day where I just decided, okay, I'm just gonna do dishes until there's no more dishes. And then the dishes kept coming. And it was about tea time, and when I actually finished the dishes. And I got a, a short break, but then after tea time, there was more dishes. So uh, I was doing dishes for hours and hours and hours that day, and they just kept coming. But uh, because I had surrendered to it, then uh, it wasn't a problem, and I felt really good about it later on, reflecting on it, uh, doing all those dishes. And uh, I remember uh, Debbie would Debbie would come in and say, "Ah." Oh, nobody's helping you again. And then she would help for a little bit. So sometimes Debbie would help. And I remember one time, uh, actually, Ajahn Kurnadamo came in and said, you know, you should be able to ask the bhikkhus for help. You know, don't, don't be afraid to ask the bhikkhus for help. So then the next day, I asked uh, another bhikkhu for help, but it wasn't him. And then I was told in Anagarika should never ask the bhikkhus for help. So <laughs> in no uncertain, in very, very firm terms. <laughs> and so I was uh, a bit traumatized by that. And, so thank you to Ajahn Kurudamo for offering that, but I didn't, you weren't the one I asked the next day, so. <laughs> the, the other monk had another idea. But uh, when I think back on things like that, I feel very good about it. So, so I think that's what the Buddha's talking about, reflecting on generosity, when we really learn how to take it on and we actually can let go of the resistance or let go of the resentment and actually say this is going to have a very, this is going to have a good effect later on, and then we uh, we embrace that that type of generosity. So, uh, and this comes up with the meditation too. It's gen uh, meditation can be seen as an act of generosity. So coming in for the sits, coming in and and uh, joining the group. There's this really nice feeling when the group is here meditating together, and we can de develop a sense of shared striving of camaraderie and uh, because we're all having to go through it all of us have different karmic baggage we're having to deal with and so uh, that sense that we're just all here in it together on this journey is uh, I find that to be very gratifying just to be practicing with everybody I find too uh, something something Ajahn Saik was talking about the other day in the Q&A session that we were doing with him was uh, this, uh, this sense that when you practice, then these things like metta, these, these good qualities, they just shine forth and they don't always really need to be cultivated per se, like as individual qualities, but that just from the practice, from doing our practice, whatever practices we are doing, then those wholesome qualities just start to shine forth. So can, uh, can already see that a little bit in the beginning of the winter retreat, this kind of, uh, shared quality of metta uh, shining forth with, with many people. So it's, it's uh, nice to see that. And uh, also uh, 
right now I'm feeling like this sense that uh, having done practice for a week, uh, the verbalization in my mind is a little bit less, so I think I'm running out of words to say, and I think I'll, I'll just uh, I'll just leave it at that, and we'll uh, we'll practice we'll continue practicing through this evening. <laughs>